this is Missy Hyatt, The Walking Riot, and I say that you need to save with Conrad. Jim Ross told me, you need to go with Conrad, he'll save you money. And he did. You guys helped me out great. And when I refinanced it and paid off everything, my payment was only $8 more a month. I probably saved at least over $30,000. They make everything so easy for you. Go to Save with Conrad if you want to refi your mortgage or anything with your mortgage. Just go to Save with Conrad. Finally out of WrestleMania, it's WrestleMania six. It's in Toronto, uh, and he is wrestling the Macho King. Uh, how does that come about? This is another match where you just seemingly, uh, what is going on? Here's a, a WWF guy. And now here is really a guy we all identify as an NWA guy. And maybe, you know, a year or two earlier, this would have been a dream match because both of those guys were near the top of their game. And now, you know, one's in polka dots and one's wearing a crown. What happened? <laughs> it was what you just said. It was two of the stop, top stars in the game. It was Randy and Dusty. And, and the characters, the Macho King, looking down on everybody. And the guys that the Macho King's looking down upon are the common people. And you got the leader of the common people, the common man, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. And you got Miss Sapphire. And you got uh, Queen Sherry. It was a match made in heaven. And it was, uh, I'll tell you a, a great story because I had been out with them during the summer and it was a mixed tag team match with the Macho King and Queen Sherry against Dusty and Sapphire. In Dusty and Sapphire's corner was Miss Elizabeth. In Savage's corner was Brother Love. Oh, wow. So we did these matches all around the horn and... It was, without a doubt, some of the most fun I have ever had in the business because Dusty and I would travel together a lot during that time. I either traveled with with Randy and Liz or I traveled with Dusty. And, oh, my God, we we just had a blast together, just up and down the roads and, and having a lot of fun. But when we first started this match, we laid out the match. Randy liked to lay things out. We laid out the match and Dusty dictated a lot of it, if you will. And the match in short kind of consisted of myself, Randy and Sherry running into Dusty's elbow. <laughs> dream, dream didn't move. The elbow just stayed up in position and our heads found it. I see. And, 
I am having an absolute blast every night. Just working with Dusty, having fun, working with Randy and Sherry and everybody. I mean, we are having a blast. And we're kind of doing the same thing every night, every night, you know, and, and we're doing this for about two, three, four weeks, maybe three weeks. And we finally get to Hamilton, Ontario, and we got a double shot. So we're doing a show in the afternoon and another uh, show that night in Toronto. Well, Pat Patterson is the agent for both shows, and Pat has not yet seen our match. He says, what have you guys been doing? And he says, well, you know, we'll show you tonight. So we go out or during the day, the first show. So we go out and we have the match and we come back and we're like, what'd you think? And he says, how are you guys getting to Toronto? I said, well, we actually were going to ride with somebody. He says, ride with me. So this is Pat Patterson telling Randy and myself and Liz to ride with him. Right. So we get in the car he had a, he had a limousine and we get in the car and on the way there, Pat tells us it was one of the worst matches he had ever seen in wow. his life. He says, I hated it. Oh, my God, Randy, you're a WWF champion, and you're out there, and you're bumping all over for him, and you're not getting anything in, and he makes you look like a piece of garbage. And essentially, he's getting Randy fired up. Because he's like telling him, he's abusing you and now you're bumping and you're making he doesn't do anything and you're a champion and everybody, they love you. And brother love, what the hell? He goes, you get in for the match, you get in one time, one time only. You got heat. Why you go in and bump all over for him? We think about it. And Pat's telling us everything that's wrong with the match that we laid out that we loved. Right. And he's making sense. He's making a lot of sense. But to be just real blunt, man, we were fans of Dusty, and we were having a good time right. <laughs> working with the dream and doing all of his stuff. So he says, let's come up with a different match. So we come up with a completely different match with basically Randy controlling the majority of the match and getting heat on Dusty and Dusty making his comeback and Brother Love gets in at the very end and Dusty gets one shot at Brother Love and that's the finish and, and we're out of there. So we get to Toronto and we have this match. Randy and I have this whole match laid out. I mean, we've got it, got it completely laid out. And... Randy says, he's fired up. I mean, he's he's just all bowed up. He's ready to go. And he's like, where's Virgil? Where is he? And he hadn't gotten there yet. Let me know as soon as he gets in and we need to talk to him. So Dusty comes in, puts his bag down. And they say, hey, uh, Dusty's in the back dressing room over there. So we go marching in and, and Randy goes over to, to Dusty. says, Green, we need to talk to you for a minute uh, in here. So we walk around the corner, go into the shower. That's where you had all your private meetings. It's in a shower or a bathroom stall. So <coughs> we we get in, and Randy starts off by going, "Oh uh, yeah, uh, we were talking to Pat about the match, and uh, he didn't like it, and uh, we had we had some changes and things like that, and." Uh, we're going to make some changes tonight. So um, 
brother love, go ahead and tell him what the match is. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. And I, I'm looking at Randy like, why me? And go, yeah, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And so I lay the match out to Dusty. And Dusty has got his back against the wall in the shower and is looking at me with these giant bug eyes. Doesn't say a word throughout the entire spiel. And we're finished. And Randy's like, okay, what do you think? And Dream just looks at him and says, baby, you know, this is kind of like somebody going in and grabbing Babe Ruth and pulling him in the shower and telling him how to hit the ball, if you will. And there's silence, and Randy says, Well, babe, that's what we're doing tonight. See you in the <laughs> ring. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was just classic dusty, and we went out, you know, we tore it up. But, uh, yeah, it, brother, yeah, okay, babe. And from that point on, he was babe to us. And That's amazing. Every night, we, we would go out and go, Hey, babe, uh, that's what we're doing. Babe is. You know, but that was just typical Dusty. So you mentioned a minute ago, um, Sapphire. You know, I'm really struggling with this. How is this not a rib? Sapphire is a valet. First of all, who is she? Where do y'all find her? Whose idea was it? And then what was Dusty's reaction? It's a lot of questions. I got a question for you first. Okay. Why do you think Sapphire is a rib? Okay. (laughs) Um... The valets in wrestling at the time are Missy Hyatt, Miss Elizabeth. Is there another one? Okay, well, let, let, let's take a Missy, Missy Hyatt. I don't think, I don't know if she was active at the time, or but she may have been with Eddie Gilbert at the time. Look at Eddie Gilbert. Look at Missy Hyatt. Look at Miss Elizabeth. Look at Randy Savage. So are you telling me that when you compare those and and you're looking at a female counterpart to the male counterpart, the common man would have a common woman by his side. He wouldn't have some beautiful stripper-esque gorgeous girl by his side. He'd have a common woman. He'd have a common, common lady by his side. So are you going to suggest that... Sapphire was not a rib? Absolutely not. Sapphire was there to enhance Dusty in the American Dream and the Common Man. That wasn't a rib. Again, I, I, I keep going to the same point. We didn't do things for a rib and especially invest that much money on something in a character. Oh, well, let's just have fun with him. No, it, it, was, it was there to enhance that character and make him more relatable. Was there any thought put into her being black? Was that Not, strategic? Well, you know, it was, I don't know that it necessarily was. We need a black woman. No, we needed a common woman. And Juanita, who was Sapphire, was a former lady wrestler from Kansas City that had, you know, she had wrestled around the circuit as princess something or other. But uh, Terry Garvin knew of a woman. And when we started talking about we need a, a common woman. And he says, I've got just a person, you know, and it would help if she had taken bumps before and different things like that. But we didn't want, 
a striking beauty, if you will, not to say that Sapphire wasn't beautiful in her own way, but we were looking for just a common woman and she fit that bill. Who suggested her? Who suggested the character Sapphire? Sapphire specifically. Who said, hey, I know a lady. Uh, That was Terry Garvin. Okay. Who came up with her, yeah. Who found her. Who in the meeting said, we need a common woman. That was Vince. Okay. Yeah. All right, so now here's the big one. What did Dusty (laughs) think about working with her? I don't know that Dream was necessarily thrilled with working with Sapphire. I don't think that he felt he needed any enhancement. So I think Dusty kind of looked at her as a handicap versus an enhancement. So uh, I don't know why my brain automatically went there, but when you said the word enhancement, a lot of people online refer to that era of the WWF as the steroid era. Um, was there any pressure or any conversation about Dusty trying to change his physique? And by saying that, I don't mean necessarily that anybody say, go take steroids. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, did he feel the need to try to trim down, to drop some weight? Uh, was there any conversation about him just trying to change his physique for WWF television? Yes, there was. And Dusty brought that up. And Dusty, when he started... And he came up in a conversation with Vince, told Vince that he was eating salads and chicken breasts and was on a diet and exercising and hitting the treadmill and all these things. And Vince looked at him and said, why? I want you as you are. I want to see the puppies. I want the flab. I, I, don't change a thing. So to the contrary, and Dusty felt that he needed to get in get in shape, if you will. Dusty was in great shape, an incredible athlete. This was a big guy. Right. But he could move for a big guy. And, you know, I laugh when people would say, oh, my God, look at that sloppy son of a bitch. How can that be an athlete? He was a stud throughout his entire career. Even then, he could move and he could go. So help me understand, when you're saying – um puppies and i know i'm circling back to something silly here are you suggesting that vince mcmahon coined that phrase and not jerry lawler are you crushing all of my dreams here today i think i'm crushing your dreams there pal (laughs) yes so vince mcmahon that's a vince term puppies okay i I don't think that well i didn't know that maybe the whole internet knew that and i didn't put uh so uh the music is iconic the dusty Rhodes theme song uh, is that something that you guys just had in the can for somebody at some point, or was that specific for Dusty Rhodes as far as the beat and all that? Obviously, 100%, the lyrics. 100% specific for Dusty Rhodes, written and performed by uh, Jimmy Hart. Wow. And that was that was for, for Dusty, and Jimmy wrote it, and with his uh, partner, I think his partner's name was Jimmy McGuire, and they knocked it out of the park. He, uh, Jimmy Hart also did Big Boss Man, too. Two iconic themes, for sure. Yeah. So it was, uh, without a doubt, definitely for Dusty Rhodes. So then, as we continue to talk about the pay-per-views, uh, Macho would work again with Dusty at SummerSlam. But then, Survivor Series 1990, Dusty Rhodes is on the babyface team, and there is a debut heel character on the opposite side of the ring, and it's Kane the Undertaker. Um, and then that was pretty much the beginning of the end for Dusty. 
Uh, kind of tell us your memories about, um, you know, me and Mark Callis then debuting uh, at that Survivor Series and Dusty's involvement in that match because they would have certainly crossed paths in the past. Uh, did anybody have any sort of issue with putting over this new guy so strong? And then kind of what was the exodus for Dusty from the WWF? You know, I don't re- I remember that, obviously. Um, but there was there was no problem at all with making sure that everybody in that match, it was that match was designed to get the undertaker over in a huge debut and to make him look like a, a killer in there. And dusty was a big part of that. You know, it may have been the fact that I just whipped dusty's ass so bad on the outside of the ring that night that he had to leave in shame having brother love have oh whoop his ass on the outside of the ring that maybe that's why he had to stick his tail between his legs and leave but no, <laughs> no. actually what what dusty left dusty had an opportunity to go back to atlanta in a in a booking position and he went to vince and says hey you know they got a shake up down here and I've been offered my old job back and Vince wouldn't stand in his way. Now, here's my question. We started this conversation and I do want to circle back to Dustin for a minute, but I want to follow up on that thought right there because we started this conversation by talking about, you know, Vince didn't really make guarantees on contracts and we just talked through what the Vince pitch was and it was kind of understood that most guys would believe they would make more money. And you said in most cases they do. So if this is for more money and he's making more money right now, why the hell would he want to go back to his old job? Power and the lure of more money there. So he felt like the booking position there would pay more than a performer with dolls and magazines and everything else. Right. Because he was in charge and he was also working and in a position to put himself in a top position and be a part of everything. Which he didn't do when he went back, by the way. He went back as a booker, but no, I don't, I don't think he, he didn't book himself into anything. He didn't book himself into that. No. So, uh, the last, you know, sort of time we'll see him on WWF TV for a long time is the Royal rumble, 1991, uh, right around that early 1991 period. And he's tagging with Dustin Rhodes. Is there any sort of irony in the fact that they are wrestling Ted DiBiase and Virgil? on his way out that it's Virgil versus Virgil. Does, is there any real thought put into that? Because that too, to me seems like a rib that Virgil Reynolds <laughs> last pay-per-view match is against a character manservant that was also named Virgil after him. Absolutely not. Cause we had, we had done the program with DiBiase and, and brought Dustin in and it was just conclusion to that program. How does that come about? Does Dusty recommend Dustin coming to the to New York, or does Vince ask about him? No, Dusty recommended him. He was in uh, Kansas City at the time, and we were coming through there, and he, we actually put him on some of the house shows that we had, and Dustin did a hell of a job. So we brought him in and did a little something with him at the time. Why was there not a play to try to keep him or do something bigger with him and just instead of just letting him go back with his dad? Because Dusty wanted him back. Okay. Dusty wanted him to come with him and out of respect to Dusty. You know, it's that's the other thing that people don't always realize with Vince McMahon is I know there's times that he's 
maybe gone back on his word with some people. But for the most part, if he gives you his word that he's going to do something, he'll do it. And he's fair, and he's he really doesn't do things out of malice. Right. You know, there, there's exceptions to that rule, obviously. But Dusty had an opportunity to go back, and uh, it's what he was going to be happy doing, having the booking position in Atlanta. And Vince was like, if you're going to be happier there, I don't want somebody here that's going to be unhappy. And if your son feels more comfortable being there working with you and you want him, I'm not going to stand in his way either. So those are things that, that he's done a lot of times over the years that people don't realize. And they wonder, well, that doesn't make any sense it it did because for the right business reasons of having a happy camper or an unhappy camper, go ahead and if you got an unhappy camper, get him out of camp. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about some fun stuff. Let's kind of rapid fire some of these. I'm sure you've got some fun stories here. Um, true or false? Dusty roads in the locker room, cowboy boots, and not much else. Yeah, pretty much. Or a T-shirt. But no pants. No pants. No. First thing Dream did when he got into a locker room was drop his drawers. <laughs> what? Why does Dusty hate pants so much? I don't know. Maybe they, maybe he got chafed or something. But, uh, yes, that's a true story. That's pretty much true wherever he was. So let's talk about that April 7th Raw. This is what everybody wants to hear about. Goldberg and Jericho get into some shit and have to be separated. After that April 7th raw, allegedly Goldberg was bad mouthing Jericho's selling ability to at least one other wrestler while backstage, according to one source. And this is from the torch hurricane overheard the conversation. And after prompting from Kevin Nash repeated it to Jericho who got worked up. So Jericho confronts Goldberg about the remark he made and the situation got physical. Jericho put Goldberg in a front face lock and held him there until the two were separated by wrestlers and agents. And eventually they shook hands before leaving the building. Goldberg had a reputation for having a short temper, but one of Wade's sources said that Goldberg handled it the right way. Quote, I don't think Goldberg was wrong on this. I just think hurricane got Jericho all worked up and Jericho was determined to fight Goldberg because he was so worked up. The source also accused Helms of being a shit stirrer and claimed this was not an isolated incident. Goldberg had refused to work a feud with Jericho in WCW, largely convinced by Nash, who told Jericho, who told Goldberg that Jericho was, quote, too small. Jericho grew frustrated since he felt he deserved that spot, and that was a major factor in his decision to leave WCW when the contract was up, and he signed with the WWF. So before we get to what Jericho wrote in his book, did you see this happen? Did you hear about it? What'd you hear? I heard about it. I did not see it happen. No, I wasn't in the dressing room when they got in the fight. Definitely heard about it. You know, it's it's interesting the the hearsay and 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 so on and so forth of unnamed sources. You know, I I don't think it's right to talk. You know, if he's going to say something about Jericho behind his back, then say it to his face. Somebody told Jericho if it was Hurricane, then it was Hurricane. I don't know. Hurricane, <laughs> probably listening to this, will probably tweet us and say, fuck yeah, I said that. Um, so, But Jericho confronted him. 
Jericho got in his face and confronted him. So you got something to say to me, say it to my face. And from all indications, Goldberg tried to say, no, I didn't say anything at first. And then the more Jericho pushed, the more, you know, Goldberg got up and, and Goldberg uh, grabbed Chris at first, I believe. And again, I wasn't there. I'm getting it all second and third hand too. And shove came Goldberg charged Jericho and Jericho took him down with a, a front face lock. And then they got pulled apart, you know, kind of much ado about nothing. But after all was said and done, it was Jericho that walked back into him and said, Hey, uh, is this going to end here now? <laughs> or, you know, do we have to fight again? Well, I'd rather just, you know, move on and let's shake hands and move the hell on. And that's what I remember. And that was the story that I heard. Going back to, um, the WCW incident. Do you think that Kevin Nash just enjoyed keeping it stirred up too? I think Kevin definitely enjoyed keeping it stirred up and going, Oh my God, you're not going to work with that guy. Well, he could have sold that a whole hell of a lot better. So, you know, the guys do, they stick each other, especially if they know that they've got somebody that's going to bite. And if there's a sore spot, you just, yes. you just pick, 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 Big pick, time. pick. Yeah. Until they just explode. Yeah. We did that to a guy in our real life recently. You and I, who us? <laughs> yeah. Who Not me? I, you can always tell when somebody's full of shit, when their voice goes up, like a few octaves, like who what? me? What are you talking about? I would never do that. Then You're you, crazy. There you go. Here's what Jericho wrote. Goldberg was coming to the WWE. The announcement jackhammered through my stomach. The moment I heard it, uh, blah, blah, blah. Problem was, I don't think Goldberg really wanted to come to the WWE, but Rocky lobbied and convinced him until bill finally relented. I wasn't too keen on him coming in either. Since the last time I'd worked with him in WCW was a complete disaster but I had no choice and decided to make the best of it. But on the first day he came up behind me and slapped him on the back, slapped me on the back as hard as he could. Hey, Chris, he said loudly and sarcastically like he was Biff and I was McFly. I could tell he was still miffed about how things had gone down with us in WCW. I was willing to let the past stay there, but I made a promise to myself. I wasn't going to let this guy throw his weight around in the WWE the way he did in WCW. Coincidentally, a few minutes later, Vince asked me for a strange favor. We've got Bill Goldberg coming in and I want you to welcome him and help him out as much as you can. I don't know if Vince knew about my past with Goldberg. He'd never asked me to help anybody else before, but I told him I'd be happy to do what I could to help him adjust to the new environment. And I intended to do just that. Do you remember Vince sort of having a little birdie, put it in his ear that they had a problem and this being Vince's way of. Okay, children, y'all shake hands. <laughs> no, I, I don't know, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. And here's why I say that. I can see Vince doing that. Vince did the exact same thing to me and Bill Watts. Bill Watts and I had, had bad blood between each other. And so Vince was like, Bruce, I want you to take care of Bill. Show Bill the way around and, and help him out. Give him a ride and do all this stuff. So I can, I hearing that for the first time now, I could see somebody going, you know, Jericho and, and Goldberg weren't the best of buds in WCW. And Chris might feel a little funny about Goldberg coming in. Great. I'll have him work with Bill and get them together. So Chris writes, it was Goldfinch's first raw. And I, I worked with triple H versus Sean and Booker T 
And after the match, I was pulled aside and informed that Goldsmith had spent the entire match barking to Nash about how I didn't know how to sell properly and how I hadn't wanted to do business with him in WCW. And that pissed me off because I'd never had a problem selling for him or anybody else for that matter. I've always done business and it was business. I was trying to do when I wanted to put bill over properly in WCW, but it was obvious to me that he still had a chip on his shoulder when it came to me. It made me mad that he'd only been with the company a little over a week and he was already up to his old tricks and it was time to put a stop to it right now. I marched straight into the dressing room and I saw Nash sitting in the corner, like a giant praying mantis acting like he owned the place. While Billy boy sat across from him with a self-indulgent smile on his face, throwing caution to the wind. I stood in front of him and stared directly into his eyes. I heard you were saying some stuff about me during my match. I don't know if you realize it, but things have changed. This isn't WCW. If you have something to say to me, say it to my face. Goldbug gave a shaky laugh and said, I didn't say anything about you. Bullshit. I know you did. Something snapped in the Burgermeister and he jumped to his feet. Oh yeah. What about all that stuff you were saying about me on the internet? (laughs) Internet, internet. Are you kidding me? I didn't spend enough time on the internet to check out club Jenna properly. Let alone talk shit about bill fucking gold. what are you talking about? A vein in his neck popped out like a worm. As he shouted back, Mike Tanay told me about the stuff you said about me on the internet. And I looked at him in disbelief and said, listen, Bill, it's simple. I could be your best friend in this company or your worst enemy. We're probably going to be working with each other at some point, And I could either make you look like a million bucks or make you look like shit. And you wouldn't know the difference. We're all here to make money and do business together. So just fucking relax. And Goldberg says, you never wanted to do the job for me in WCW. You're a prima donna. You're totally wrong about that. And before I could finish the sentence, goldfish grunted like a Neanderthal and grabbed me by the throat. Now, let me preface the rest of this story by saying I'm not the toughest man, nor would I've ever claimed to be. However, when someone puts their hand on my throat and begins to squeeze, it's time to throw hands. Am I right? Let's take a vote to make sure. Uh, once Goldster made his move, I reacted the only way I knew how I swatted his hand off my throat and gave him a two handed push to the chest. He rushed forward with his head down, trying to tackle me like the ex NFL lineman he was. And I stepped to the side, like the world's worst matador and gave him a front face lock. It was the only shoot hold. I knew that harkened back to my days bouncing at Malarkey's in Calgary. I think I surprised the shit out of him with my lethal hold and was able to power him down to the ground, applying pressure because I knew if I pushed his throat into his chest long enough, he might pass out. I really hoped that he would go to sleep because I would I was sure that he was going to fire back up and then kick the shit out of me. I mean, come on. Have you ever seen this guy? He's massive. I continued to hold my own and I couldn't figure out why he wasn't fighting back. I got a little lazy and released the pressure slightly. And suddenly he rolled on top of me. I was freaking out at this point, convinced he was going to eat me, but I held on to my patented front face lock. He starts bucking around like a mechanical bull, but surprisingly I was able to use his momentum against him and roll him over again. Yeehaw, Jericho 2, Goldie 0. It was like WCW all over again, except this time it was real. Well, eventually, everybody separates them. Um, This is sort of not what you want to have happen on your second night in. What's Vince Vince McMahon's reaction to this fucking shit going down in the locker room? Not happy and, and pissed off. It's... 
you know, anytime that the children misbehave, you know, he's going to get angry and he doesn't want guys fighting in the dressing room, screwing up the dressing room. But same time, sometimes it's healthy. So, <laughs> you know, uh, Vince wasn't happy about it. He was glad that they went back and they shook hands and they, you know, pretty much squashed it on their own. But it's, it's silliness and for not good for Bill. You know, no matter what, you know, Bill's new Jericho is, has been there. Jericho's proven his weight and it also boosted the stock of Jericho. Jericho's got coconut balls and you know, yeah, he may not be the toughest guy in the world, but he's not going to back down from a fight either. And so, you know, I give him credit for having the balls to go get in Goldberg's face. So if you're wondering, it was broken up by Arn Anderson, Terry Taylor, Hurricane, Christian, and Booker T. As Jericho writes, Nash Mantis continued to sit in his chair in the corner of the room watching the festivities. <laughs> and they're sort of pulling Jericho off of him. Uh, and, and he's doing this after he's got his legs crossed around his midsection and he's still got this front face lock. And they're sort of holding his arms behind him. And he realizes he's in a prone position. Uh, he's thinking he's going to punch me in the face. So he starts screaming, let go, let go. Eventually they do, but as they do, instead of punching him, Goldberg starts pulling his hair. What is it with wrestlers in scuffles in the back pulling hair? Brett, Sean, well, Goldberg, and Jericho. Well, I'll tell you, you know, one thing about pulling hair is, is if you can control the head, you can control the body. So if you get a hold of somebody's hair and you get a good grip on their hair, you control their body. That's just fighting one oh one, man. That's that goes back from my, you know, um three time black belt hall of fame. That's right. what we teach. So Goldberg being a martial arts guy, I would have taught him that. So once they're sort of separated and Jericho uh pie faces him as hard as he can and he stumbles back, and Jericho now has lost a, a handful of hair. Goldberg's probably been embarrassed. Jericho realizes I'm done with this fight. And he screams, what the hell is wrong with you, man? You're acting like a goof. And Goldberg replied, your mother's a fucking goof. And Booker T has the line of the day as he's chewing an unlit cigar. And he says, hold up. Did you just say his mother's a fucking goof? That's the worst insult I've ever heard, man. What should, what would Terry Funk have said that he should have said instead? Your mother's a whore. Be sure to check brucepritchard.com tomorrow and I'll have that. Your mother's a fucking goof shirt up. Um, <laughs> eventually they do settle down and, uh, Jericho walks back over to bill and says, matter of fact, like, here's the deal. You can shake my hand right now. And we can forget about this or we can come to work and do this every single week. I don't give a shit either way. Goldberg looked him in the eye, shook his hand and they called the truce. What a fucking story, man. You know, it's not. If this wouldn't have been Goldberg, this is a real question. If this would have been Funaki, is Funaki getting shit canned? For getting in a fight in the locker room? On his second weekend? It would have depended on what the fight was over, yeah. I mean, but it would it, it would it would really have to depend on, on what the hell was going on or how they resolved it. Does Vince have these guys have a meeting after the fact? Does he call them together? Does JR is there ever any sort of repercussions or fallout or is it just a phone call? Everybody explains what it is and we move on. I'm sure that Jr. probably got both guys together and or separately. 
and just said, are we good here? You know, made sure that weren't going to have any more of this bullshit. They needed to move on. Anytime there's a skirmish like this, it's hard to really call it a fight, but when there's a skirmish like this, we all remember back in high school, everybody starts to talk about, oh, who won? And so there's this big vote amongst the witnesses of who won. In your opinion, who was everybody saying won this skirmish? Jericho. Did it sour any of the boys on Goldberg? Did it boost Jericho's sort of street cred amongst the boys? Well, it definitely boosted uh, Jericho and the... <laughs> I don't know if the line afterwards, your mother's a fucking goof. Uh, <laughs> you know, that pro- that probably hurt more than anything uh, than getting taken down and everything else. So um, I just think that it, it helped Jericho and didn't, didn't help Goldberg at all. Okay. Tell the truth. How many of us maybe felt a little miserable after the holiday? Some fireworks went off. We had a few cold ones and maybe you were struggling. Same. Luckily, a game changing product called Z Bionics is here to help. You want to enjoy those drinks on vacation without wasting the next day in bed? Well, Z-Bionics is the $9 travel insurance that you'll actually use. I mean, let's face it, after a long night with drinks, I just don't bounce back the next day like I used to. And now I have to make a choice. I can either have a great night or a great next day. That is until I found Z-Bionics. I absolutely love this product. It's been a game changer in my world and in Bruce's world. You see, Z-Bionics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle the rough mornings after drinking. And here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's that byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your next day. And isn't something we've all heard? Like it feels like everybody says, oh, you just gotta chug a bunch of water. Buddy, that doesn't do it. You see, Z-Biotics produces an enzyme to break down that toxic byproduct and poof, you feel a lot better. It really is designed to work just like your liver, but in your gut where you really need it the most. So here's the steps. You drink Z-Biotics before drinking, and then of course we want you to drink responsibly and then enjoy the night with confidence that you're gonna feel much different than you imagined the next day. And I have to admit, I was a skeptic about this. We tried it a few years ago. I'll never forget, we were actually on location in Nashville and uh, both Eric and I maybe had a few too many, but we said, you know what? Let's try Z-Biotics up front. Dude, we were back in Adam on the sales floor the next morning like nothing happened. It made such a big difference. I couldn't wait to tell Bruce and everybody else about it. And now our whole team can stay on top of their game all because we all know about Z-Biotics. I am 100% convinced that this actually works. I want you to try it. Savor the moment. Let Zbiotics do the rest. Go to zbiotics.com slash STWW and you'll get 15% off your first order when you use the code STWW at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, head to zbiotics.com slash STWW and use the code STWW at checkout for 15% off. And we thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring today's episode. Um, Edge was married at the time to a woman named Lisa. 
Uh, did you know Lisa? Had you met her before? Was that uh, the first, second, or third one? Okay. So. Well, no, I'm, I'm, and I don't mean that to be mean. I, I really and truly don't. Uh, was that his first wife? I, I don't know. I, I, I knew his first wife. I was there when he asked her to marry him. That was Val Venus's sister. I don't remember, man. I think it was his second wife, though. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, for the purposes of our story, I don't know that it matters. I don't know that Well, it's... you asked the question. Well, I asked if you knew her, and you, you kind of buried him and asked which one. So that went... no, it's not a burial. He knows. I love him to death. Uh, he married Elena Morley in 2001. Uh, they divorced in 2004. Uh, Lisa Ortiz was his second wife. They married in October of 04 and would divorce November the following year. I wonder why. Uh, he's with number three now, and I think you're kind of being Beth. a jerk with that. And that's Beth. I'm Phoenix. not being a jerk with that. I well, just, he said first. He's had two third, successful but... divorces. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, didn't want, didn't mean to get sidebarred. He's married at the time to Lisa Ortiz. They're married in October of 2004. Uh, Matt and Lita had been together at this point when all this is going down in 2005 for like six years. They started dating in early 1999. Uh, this is starting to feel very TMZ-like, but this is what we're talking about. Uh, Matt is off the road here in 2005 with a reconstructive knee surgery. He'd torn his ACL. And was set to be out for like nine months. So right in the middle of uh, his career here, he's sidetracked. Not too long after the split, uh, Lisa, I'm sorry, Lita had uh, started traveling alone. Uh, in the absence of Matt, of course, they were traveling together. Uh, and prior to this, uh, he had been on SmackDown and doing really well after a draft and, and a split. They separated them, and I want your kind of feedback as to why, if you know that Matt Hardy and Lita are together, and we saw this this year with Del Rio and Paige, why does the company split couples like this, where Matt is now on SmackDown and Lita is on Raw? Well, it's it's not it had nothing to do with, you know, their personal situation. Um it's just one of those things where it's time for a change and split it up on screen and do a little bit something different. But, you know, that that's one of those things that just kind of happens. Well, you know, some, some people, they'll keep together. Some people, they won't. Why don't you think there would be consideration given to that? There is some consideration. I don't know that there was necessarily consideration given to that, though. Okay. Uh, so that's a non-answer. Let's move along. No, I, I did answer. You didn't like my answer. Well, it just seems it seems random that, you know, well, sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. But why? Because sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. But you can't give because, me any reason as to why. Because you here. want to do something different with them. And having them on the same thing, they're going to gravitate towards the same old, same old. When you get them separated, they get in new territory, and maybe they'll exceed and they'll do something different. So you're, you're what you're saying is you're trying to get the individual performer outside of a comfort zone Behind Correct. the scenes, not necessarily creatively in front of the camera. All the above. Okay. See, I, I don't think that was that hard. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> Lita is uh, traveling alone here because Matt's home. Uh, and, and Lita, uh, this is worth mentioning, even though they're separated, Matt asked to come to Raw. 
So when he comes to Raw, he's not featured nearly as prominently. Uh, they were doing something with him on SmackDown, not so much on Raw. Do you have any comments about that? No. I mean, it was it was simply a situation of, you know, like you said, there was something for him there on SmackDown with the brand split, and they, you know, had people for him to work and things for him to do there. And on Raw, there wasn't that fit there. So here's my question. It was, it was a different environment. Who were who were the writers on each show? Was it the same writing group? No. Or was it split? Okay. So no, it was split writing group. Talk us through who would have been on the writing staffs of SmackDown and Raw at the time. Uh, Brian and Ed on Raw. would have been probably on Raw. And uh, Michael and, and DJ would have been on SmackDown. Michael Hayes and, and DJ is who? Krista Joseph. Okay. Well, I'm just saying you're speaking in shorthand. Not everybody listening knows who these people. Well, are. I'm trying to remember. I and you're on meds. Keep up. You're it. telling people to stick stuff in their Google machine. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. All right, Krista Joseph and Michael Hayes on SmackDown are taking good care of Matt Hardy. Ed Kosky and Brian Gerwitz don't have anything for him. Gerwitz. Okay. Well, thank you. So you said Not Brian. Gerwitz. You said Brian, and if you would pronounce it. You know what? You know what? This is a small world. Brian Gerwitz just bought one of my shirts from ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash Bruce Pritchard. He bought I Wrote This Shit. Did he really? Yes, he really and truly did. I sent you a screen grab of it so that you can see it. And, uh, yes, he did. Thank you, Brian. Brian, I'm, I'm, I sent you a personal text. Uh, Livio Marino in Independence, Missouri just bought uh, the I Love You shirt and the box of gimmicks as we've been on here recording this. So I'll thank Livio on air here for uh, their purchase. I'm going to call them when we hang up. But yeah, Brian Gortz <laughs> just bought while we're shooting that while we're shooting this. Actually, we're recording that. Uh, you and I are shooting it. Um, just bought the I Wrote This Shit shirt. So it's worth mentioning uh, if you go to Pro Wrestling Tees forward slash Bruce Pritchard and you pick up a shirt. As long as Bruce is not dying, uh, he will call and thank you. That's a new thing that you've started doing, and uh, it's pretty cool that you're doing that, Bruce. Well, I even made calls today <laughs> with my pneumonia. So, Well, either way, we'd love to see you in one of these shirts. You're going to love the shirt, and we want to be as fan-friendly as we can. So how can you be? You get a great shirt, and you get a phone call from Brother Love himself. Hook it up. ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash Bruce Pritchard. Uh, you're going to love the way you look. It's an old men's warehouse line, but uh, I love my love shirt and you will too. So help me understand. You said a minute ago, they had something for him and people to work with on SmackDown and they didn't on raw. If they know that well, they, going in, why do they let, why do they let him move? Like, why don't they say, no, you can't move. Probably because he wanted, he wanted to move. He was unhappy where he was. Didn't want unhappy people around. Well, he didn't want to be split up to begin with, but. You did it. Okay. So, so help me understand. So you get split up. You have an opportunity to do something. You're unhappy with that. You want to go back somewhere else. And, and so here's my question. That's a chance you take. 
I get that. But is there a little bit of you? And I want you to just be honest here and not just go right into defense mode. Is there a little bit of, God damn, we're pushing the kid and he's still not happy. He wants to be over here. We're going to fucking put him on the bottom for a little while. No, it's simply a situation of when you're sitting there and you're writing TV and from a frustration standpoint on the SmackDown side, I'm going to venture a guess. I'm not going to say this is what it was, but I'll venture a guess where it's like, damn, we've got something for him over here. We want to do something with him. He doesn't want that. He wants to go over there. Well, now Raw's sitting there going, well, we've already got, you know, stuff going on with other people. Now we've got a new guy. And it's a different environment, different situation. It feels a little bit to me like if I had to put myself in those shoes, which admittedly, obviously, I never have, I would feel some pressure to find something for everyone. But I might feel a little less pressure if this guy was already getting a push somewhere else and then came over and he was just kind of thrown in my lap. I might say, well, listen, if something awesome pops up, I'll give it to him, but I'm not going to go out of my way to try to make this work. I've got all these other guys I'm trying to cater to. Try not to do that, though. I mean, you, you try to do something as best you can for everybody, but unfortunately, the, the reality of the situation is probably what you said. Um, I can't speak for them. Right. Okay. Well, good deal. Let's move along a little bit, and uh, let's talk about it. Uh, so let's set the stage again. Edge is married to a woman named Lisa. They've been married since October of 04. We're now in uh, February of 2005. So not that long uh, into that marriage. Uh, Edge, um, or I'm sorry, Matt and Lita have been together, though, about six years at this point. And Matt's home. He's off the road. He's got a torn ACL. He's rehabbing to come back. He's supposed to be sidelined for like nine months. Everybody knows a torn ACL is pretty legit. So Lita's traveling alone. Edge is traveling alone. Obviously, these guys were all big friends. Uh, he asks um, if they can travel together. She runs it past Matt. Matt says, hey, cool with me. You know, you guys are buds. They go from casual friends to being alone in these long car rides every night, which the company still has them doing. Uh, it's routine for them to, you know, drive 250, 300 miles a night after the show. So that lends itself to two people just talking. And when men and women do that over and over and over on this crazy schedule, things happen and things certainly started to happen. Matt would say that Lita started to act weird around Valentine's day in 2005. And then a week or so later, he goes through her voicemail in the middle of the night, which is never a good move for those of you listening. If you're a young person, don't do that. Uh, no good can come from that. And it didn't hear. Uh, he listened to the voicemail and he heard edge professing his love for her. Uh, he immediately forwards those to himself and hurricane Helms before confronting her with the voicemails on his own phone and then promptly throws her out, leaves a nasty message for edge and then takes her pictures off his website, puts, puts away all her pictures in the house. Uh, and a few days later wondered if it could be fixed. But of course we all know that didn't work out. Uh, well, then it gets out on the internet, supposedly, when Matt Hardy's friend writes a blog. And then it goes viral, as they say, and Matt starts airing the dirty laundry everywhere. And I would imagine this happens from a trying to save face standpoint and maybe just trying to put the heat on them. But he's obviously in a very an emo an emotional state when all this happens. When's the first time you remember hearing... 
Houston, we have a problem. Well, I was in Houston at the time, and <laughs> I actually wasn't wasn't there when it all first started happening. I had some personal issues going on at home, and you know, I was not going to TVs on a regular basis. I, I was, you know, kind of maybe once a month at the time. People online are going to hear what you just said and assume that you're saying uh, you had drug issues. That's not the case. No, not the case. Okay. You had, you, you had a family situation. Yeah, family issues. Okay. And so uh, my my involvement was over the phone. Uh, you know, I'm hearing pretty much rumor and innuendo like everyone else at the time. So I wasn't there in the pit for probably the very beginning of it. I didn't come back full time until right after uh, Matt was let go. Okay. Uh, so that was, it was, it was, uh, I, I don't know. It was like six, eight weeks maybe in that time frame. So let's go through it. Uh, on April 11th, 2005, Matt is released. Uh, he says that Johnny Ace called him while he was rehabbing for his comeback and told him he was going to be released because quote, creative doesn't have anything for you. Uh, Matt says he pressed and wanted to know if this had anything to do with his personal situation and Johnny Ace said no. Uh, Matt believes that Ace had a personal vendetta against him. Uh, and Johnny Ace would later say that he had multiple conversations around this time about being immature and making emotional decisions. And that he did not have a personal vendetta. He had just simply spoken to him several times uh, about this. Uh, at the shows, fans start chanting, you screwed Matt at Edge, which really starts to get him over as a heel in a big way, whether they wanted it or not. Uh, they're ch alternating, I guess, between you screwed Matt and we want Matt. I think everybody remembers at one night stand that year, uh, Paul Heyman says something along the lines of hide your wives. It's, uh, hide your wives. It's edge. And then later says he has two words for him, but says three, Matt freaking Hardy. And um, Edge does the fake spit take and just got a big pop catering to the fans uh, for the cheap pop. Uh, Edge and Lita at this time would go on record uh, in every interview since and say that they really felt like they had been alienated in the locker room and that the locker room had turned on them. Do you remember any sort of situation like that when you came back after he was gone? Yeah. You know, let, let's go back to the whole Johnny Ace thing. Okay. Um, I believe, I do believe Johnny's take on that. And I, I'm sure that there was probably a feeling that Matt airing his dirty laundry and, and Matt being emotional and going public with everything probably didn't help his cause. And I'm sure that Johnny probably tr had several conversations with him. I was not privy to the conversations between Matt and Johnny, but that wouldn't surprise me. Okay. Um, and as far as Adam and Lita kind of being ostracized a little bit, yeah, there were, I think guys that looked at it, you know, the bro code and felt that not cool, you know, Matt's at home, but at the same time, look, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take sides here, 
life happens sometimes. And as you say, you know, they're in the road, they're on the road, they're in the car for many hours, every single night in between towns, shit happens. I'm saying right. Not saying it's wrong. It's just life. Life happens sometimes. And I dare say in the end, as we all sit here today, everything worked out, you know, pretty good on all sides, you know, on all fronts, but it, it sucked at the time going through it on both sides of it. And so you fast forward a little bit, you know, Heyman does his stuff and, uh, the Matt freaking Hardy comment and the audience, you know, the audience is intelligent, man. They know, you know, they read the crap. And so they're, they're doing the chants. And it's one of those situations that I always would say to people, you know, talent can't be denied. Right. And if it's there, you know, it's there. So there was a groundswell of, man, we want Matt Hardy. The real life story that was going on behind the scenes was now taking place in front of the cameras. And we've only got, you know, two thirds of this trilogy here. So you're sitting there going, okay, do you just ignore it? You know, when the crowd hijacks a, a live show with, we want Matt chance and bringing signs and everything else. Do you just go, okay, well, uh, they'll go away after a while. They don't go away. They get louder. So I'd come back at that time. And as, as I've stated before, you know, kind of like with the, the, the Kurt angle, Jeff Jarrett situation, whenever there is reality thrown into a storyline a make believe storyline and people question whether that's real or not. Right. Those are the best. Absolutely. <clears throat> when you can't tell if it's real or Memorex, those are the best. And, you know, I threw out the idea. What if, what if Matt Hardy came back? Can they work together? Because what people forget is that these characters that are larger than life on TV and are in your living rooms every week, they're just real life people going through the same shit that you're going through. They just happen to work on TV. Right. And happen to be known by millions of people by their stage names. But they still have emotions and feelings and real life problems just like everybody else. So you have to weigh that when you look at mixing uh, real life. You know, art imitates life. Life imitates art. And when you play with that fire, sometimes you get burned, but it, it's it's a touchy, touchy subject. So uh, I'd kind of come come back from not being there every week, <laughs> and you know I'm like do 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 do. Um, what if guys? You know they've been living it. The, the guys there, they've been living it every week. And, you know, I come in, I'm all fresh. I'm all happy to be back. You know, shit, I've, I'm rested. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be uh, back at work. So 
I get in and I throw the idea out there. Well, I'm sure that the idea had been thrown out there many times before, but all of a sudden it's a new, you know, new, new voice. You know, so God damn it. Why the hell didn't anybody else think of this type deal? And you know, it's, it's, uh, we tried it on, you know, and, and it's like, well, talk to them and see if they're game for it. So I took, uh, before you get to that go ahead. Uh, on camera, they had already started to put them together. So edge and Lita, Lita and, and edge. edge. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. They're, they're on camera together and it's a natural decision because, you know, they're taking over whenever Lita comes out to do a promo, they're taking over with these chants and they can't do anything but address them. Um, kind of the similar situation with edge, no matter what they're, they're supposed to do based on the script or storyline. Uh, this thing has taken over a life of its own. So they put them together, make them heels and edge sort of starts to become the rated R superstar that he would eventually really level up with. And Lita started saying she was finally with a quote unquote real man. And so they're talking about it, but not really talking about it. And they're making out and talking about sex and lots of crazy stuff. Um, and around this same time, Matt Hardy is really going off the deep end with crazy stuff online. And it looks like he's almost unhinged. He's calling himself the angelic Diablo and doing crazy videos in a hot tub and such. Uh, the beginning of this broken character that has really gotten over, you can kind of see some of the seeds of this here, uh, before you pitched this, had they already done the wedding angle? I don't remember. I, I don't remember the timing of it. So, but so real quick I do. in June, they do a wedding angle with edge and Lita and they ask if it, you know, they hold speak now forever, hold your peace. And they play Hardy's music. Of course, Hardy's not there, but it's just built feeding into this more and more and more. I mean, almost like a wrestling's version of a Rickroll right there. Um, and then of course we see that they have made on, on July 11th, 2005, Matt returns unannounced backstage and attacks edge before being run off by the agents. There's something at the end of the match. We'll talk about our end of the night too. We'll talk about in a minute, but Get back to how you finally kind of get everybody to at least consider this as an angle and you pitch it. Vince doesn't hate it. He likes the idea. Where do we go from here? Well, you know, feelers were sent out. I think Michael talked to Matt and it was, uh, my duty to sell it to Matt and Lita. And that was not an easy sell. And I remember taking them up into the stands in an arena, wherever the hell we were for TV and pitching the idea, they were dead set against it. They had lived it. And it was a very difficult, it, it had been a difficult time for everybody involved. And, you know, it was obviously a difficult time for Matt. It was obviously a difficult time for Lita. And it was obviously a difficult time for Adam. And not saying anybody's right or wrong, it just sucked. My feeling was, well, hell, might as well make some money with it. The audience is begging for it. It's real. The emotions are there, so you don't have to worry about getting into character. Um, 
Can you do it? Can you work with them? Would you be willing to try this on with the proviso that if it doesn't work and it gets out of hand, we would end it? And they thought about it, they being Edge and Lita, and reluctantly agreed to do it. So um, I really don't remember who the hell talked to Matt. I think I think it was Michael, and then obviously probably Johnny Ace was involved. But we came up with the idea to to have Matt jump the railing and come in and attack Edge. But the the most fucked up thing that happened that night was that I had to get Edge and Matt Hardy together for the first time since all this shit blew up and go over what we wanted to do, you know, physicality wise and and what we were going to do because not everyone knew that Matt Hardy was going to be there and what we were going to do with Matt. It wasn't widely known. We had snuck Matt in and we had him at a separate hotel and we had sent a car over to go pick him up a stretch limousine and when I knew the limousine was there, Edge and I went out and I sat between them in a car and explained what we were going to do. And it was the first time they had seen each other. They shook hands. They were very professional and uh, laid everything out for them. And so we see it on July 11th, 2005. Uh, as I said before, Matt returns unannounced and attacks Edge backstage. Uh, they shoot it like it's a shoot. The agents run him off. Uh, they don't get a clear camera angle. It just feels rushed. Um, so it makes it feel authentic. And then towards the end of the show, he jumps uh, from the, the crowd into the ring, and security tries to separate them as he attacks Edge. Uh, and eventually Hardy gets on the mic, and this is where you guys really started to make it feel real. He refers to Edge as Adam, which is the first time that had happened in this situation. And he even referred to Lita as a whore, which shocked me, even for WWE standards. Uh, but then he even yells Ring of Honor and ROH before saying that WWE can kiss his ass kind of carry me through whose idea it was to and i know we just talked a minute ago about when you can blur the lines between reality that's when it really makes it awesome so you can kind of point things on the show and say okay i know i know that's kind of you know winking or nod tongue in cheek but this this was real whose idea is it obviously vince greenlighted all the ideas but whose idea is it to use his real name to do the whore thing, and most of all, this is what shocks me the most, to say Ring of Honor on air. It's a collaboration. I mean, it, it was all of us getting together, and what you know, what can we do to give this a, a real feel to it? Um, you know, the, the realest thing that happened that night on top of everything was it was the first time that Amy had seen Matt in a long time. I didn't get Amy together with Matt. So she was the, not ready. She was not ready for that at that point. So when Matt comes out and then later on backstage, I mean, Amy was, was emotional and, um, I felt horrible about that. You know, I, I, I second guessed that one and, and felt really bad about that because it, you know, again, I, I keep saying the, these poor guys were, were in really awkward positions 
and we're asking them to do this for business sake and um and it's real life emotions, man. You know, she was with Matt for a long time and it just was very emotional. And 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 it was real to to a large extent. You know, both guys giving their body to the other and and not knowing, you know, somebody's going to take a cheap shot or or what's going to happen. And you know, I, I say to this day, Everybody was extremely professional. Uh, so you get Matt and Edge before the show. Is this the day of the show when you get them together for the first time, or do they meet before this actually? No, that was that night. It was probably the the show, the live event had started. So the show's already happening, and you just get them in a limo to talk. Yes, Matt arrived in the limo, and I brought Edge out to him. And at that point, you specifically wanted to keep her out of there, or did she request to stay out of there? She, I, I didn't need her at that point, and I, I knew that she was emotional. I knew that she didn't, you know, she wasn't ready for that. Okay. I didn't need her, and I didn't. I, so rather than muddy the water and put the object above, you know, everyone's desire in the middle of it. It wasn't necessary. You know, there was an issue between two guys that used to be friends um, and we're ready to, you know, can we put the past behind us and move forward? So I've uh, had the privilege of being, you know, kind of behind the scenes at these shows with Rick a few times. And uh, it's interesting to see. You know, just the social behaviors, you can kind of tell that there's groups of people who are super tight and then groups of people who aren't necessarily. It's not necessarily that anyone's cross, but um, it's just different. You know, just like in real life or any work environment, anywhere in the world. Do you remember, you know, where, where Edge and Lita kind of shunned? Or is there a certain group of people who just didn't care and, hey, that's y'all's business or... Did people have a lot of sympathy for Matt? And did that change when Matt comes back that night and he's around all these people for the first time? Did some of these guys have to feel like they needed to babyface Matt, even if they really hadn't been prior? Well, Matt wasn't around the guys in the back. Matt was thrown out. Matt was taken out. Matt went in a different way. Matt was taken out afterwards. He wasn't around the guys. But, you know, I already said before, you know, Matt and Lita had, had kind of been shunned a little bit and, from from everything that had taken place but once matt came back you know it kind of all was just one big happy family again and so what's the answer it wasn't a happy family it was that family that says okay we got to work together and let's do what we need to do and be professional everybody's talking about this um so you know when one of the boys comes up that night and sees that matt's there and says bruce what's up uh matt's here what's going on well, Matt wasn't there. Well, they see him when they he's told playing. you he came in a limo. He sat out in the back when it was time for him to come in. We snuck him in. He hits the ring. He's thrown out. We sneak him back in. He does his thing backstage and is thrown out again. So he wasn't hanging around in the back. He wasn't talking with guys. But I, I guess what I'm asking is, the intent was to work the boys. No, the intent wasn't to work anybody. It was the intent was 
for people not to be talking about it, for not to get out and to give the air of reality because we were shooting backstage and to give that air of this isn't supposed to happen. And if he's back there and they're all hanging out and bullshit and everybody sees it and, and there's not that same intensity, there's not that same feeling. So there, we didn't want him back there. We didn't want some, some security guard with a camera snapping a picture and posting it online or anything like that. So the idea was to give it a real feel. I, I, I follow all of that. You know, I, I got that. I guess what I'm, maybe I'm not asking the right way. After SummerSlam this year, when Brock Hardwayed Randy Orton, rumors and innuendo would lead you to believe that Chris Jericho goes to Michael Hayes and says, what the fuck? And then there's maybe or maybe not an incident, depending on, you know, which version of that story you believe. I guess my question is, does anyone come to the, to, to you guys and say, Hey dude, what the fuck? After he's been out there, not, not that I remember. I mean, I'm busy, you know, doing, doing a live show and doing stuff. I'm busy. I, I don't have time to, I, I, you know, I don't have time to wonder about what everybody else is doing and worrying about. And I don't have time to sit there and, and answer questions about everything else. And, I mean, that, that sounds assholeish. Like, yeah. Huh? Sounds assholeish. Well, no, I'm sorry. I have a job to do. I've got a live television show that I'm trying to After run. After the show's over, nobody says, dude, what's up? Not Martin? that I remember, no. So, uh, I guess. I'm sure is- they were talking amongst themselves, but I, 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 when you're producing a television show, well, I have you responsible for all that stuff. I don't have time for that. Yeah, we learned last week you don't even have time to keep them from wandering out when they're fucked up. Uh, help me understand. You've told me in the past when I asked about working the boys and that you felt horrible about it. Now you're kind of working the boys and you're defending it hardcore. Not work. I'm not working the boys. We just didn't didn't tell them. You know that there's a big difference. There's you're sitting there and you go, okay, hey. This is going to happen. Why do tell me this? Why do they need to know everything that's going to happen? Well, I'm not saying they do. Well, you are because if we, if they don't know every single thing that's happened, we're working them. So if we want to surprise everybody, we should get everybody together and say, okay, this is what we're going to do tonight, folks. We should have the run sheet. We should post the run sheet I, I, online I so everybody can see that. And and when we have our surprise, they should just see that. And there should be no shock or surprise or actual genuine emotion. You done? I guess one. Okay. Let me fucking know when it's my turn to talk and I'll talk. Okay. Your turn. People. Let me tell you about my best friend, not Bruce blue chew. And I'm telling you, it's going to be your lady friend's best friend too. She's going to remember why she fell in love with that rascal. Cause you're going to feel like a younger, more viral man. Okay. Not really. Here's the deal. Blue chew is not just for guys who have a problem. Blue chews for guys who are looking for a five star match. Okay. They want to, uh, <clears throat> go a few extra rounds. Blue chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost daddy. Take them anytime, day or night. So plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Boing. And the process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com. Consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, bam, you receive that prescription in a few days. The best part, it's all done online. 
No visit to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. And I'm telling you, maybe, if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, daddy, chew it and do it. Have some better sex, y'all. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free. When you use our promo code WRESTLE at checkout, just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is WRESTLE, and you'll receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we want to thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast and brother loves hog meat. Let's go to the May 26th draw. Goldberg's back on the highlight reel and Goldberg is having to sit and listen to Jericho sort of rattle off his accomplishments that he didn't have the opportunity to face Goldberg in WCW because he wasn't considered a big enough star. So he comes to the WWE and becomes the biggest star ever, the first ever undisputed champion. And he said it, he'd been waiting five years to go face to face with Goldberg and he would tattoo his name on Goldberg's ass. So he'd never underestimate him again. So he challenges him to a match and Goldberg charges out to the ring, but Jericho bails, of course, they set up a match for bad blood here. Both guys accept, and it looks like this is our next pay-per-view seems like a natural progression to sort of move to the Jericho match. At this point, the dirt sheets already knew about the backstage skirmish. Does that play something into the booking here? I mean, since people know about it, might as well go with it, right? Well, you go with it, but it was also Vince knew that Jericho would make Goldberg look good. He knew that Christian could make Goldberg look good. And that was more of the idea behind it. And then if people wanted to throw in the reality of the backstage shit, that helps too. How was, uh, Goldberg at this point, you know, he's, uh, been in a wig. He's, um, had the barracuda stall out on him. He's had a not so great match with the rock. He's had, uh, a, a mini feud with Christian. Now he's working with Jericho. Is he pleased with his creative at the time? How is he to deal with? I think that Bill at, at this point in this stage was paranoid. He had a lot of people in his ear. He was in new surroundings and he was unsure of himself. And, and I think that people played up that paranoia and that they, they were getting in his head and he didn't trust anybody and he was unhappy. And he let everybody around him know that he was unhappy. So it was Bill pretty much kind of kept to himself, which didn't help with the, hey, hang out with the boys and at least be one of the boys and be out and about. Um, he didn't do that. Uh, so it that didn't that didn't help him out a whole lot either. Um the next week on raw June 3rd Goldberg's in the back for an interview, but we see Jericho throwing paint on his car. So Goldberg runs out and gets in the car, which is already running and gives chase Bruce. What the fuck? Why so many cars? We've got the, okay, this is, this is part two of your story from earlier on San Diego, California. The idea behind it is Bill's got another car. Okay. He had the Barracuda. Now he's got, you know, this, whatever the hell car it was, some kind of, old car. And the idea was that if Jericho ruins a car and throws paint all over his prized possession again, and that, uh, that would help get heat without having to beat Goldberg down and without Goldberg having to beat Jericho down. But 
for car guys, you fuck with my car. And people knew that, you know, Bill had done stuff on the car network or speed network about his car. So everybody knew that he had these prized possessions. So there were a couple of producers involved in this. And I was in charge of the, uh, shot with Jericho and the paint and the car and Bill getting in the car and taking off. So we rehearsed this. I don't know how many times. And when I say we rehearsed it about at least eight times, we probably did it 10 or 12. Um, and when we rehearsed it, I mean, we went through everything, obviously, except for the paint being thrown. We went through the placement of where the security guard was and where Bill would run up and that Bill would ask the security guard, which way did he go? The security guard would point which way he went and Goldberg would get in the car and take off in the direction that the security guard pointed. Again, rehearsed over and over and over and over again. We're live. So we're doing this, and it's, it's still daylight out in California, and Jericho is there, Goldberg's down doing the interview live in one part, so there's one producer down there. I'm up top in the parking area with Jericho, and we do it. Jericho throws the paint. The paint looks great, man. It's perfect. Goldberg comes running up the ramp. He's blown sky high. The security guard is in the exact place that he's supposed to be in. Goldberg shoves the security guard out of the way, jumps in the car, and goes the wrong way. Now, he's rehearsed this all day long getting in the car and going the correct way. He's rehearsed it all day long, running up and asking the security guard, which way did he go? And the security guard telling him and then going the correct way. For whatever reason, Bill ran up, shoved the security guard out of his way, didn't ask him which way he went, and then got in his car and drove the wrong way. So the dreaded words across the headsets that nobody in the WWF ever wants to hear. Your name, Bruce. Come to Gorilla. And bring everyone involved in that shoot. So I'm walking down the ramp. The producer down at the bottom of the ramp that was doing Goldberg's interview is walking up the ramp. Like, what happened? And I'm like, geez, I said, man, I, I don't know. <laughs> Let's go up and find out. So we get up to the gorilla position and Vince is sitting at the table and Vince takes his glasses off first, then takes his headset off and says, what in the fuck was that? To which there were four of us. It was myself, the stage manager, the cameraman and the other producer. And almost unanimously, we all said, I don't know. And he's like, I've got four people standing in front of me responsible for one shot. And the only answer I get is, I don't know. God damn it, Bruce. I said, Vince, what? Well, I mean, God damn it, he went the wrong way. I said, Vince, you were there. We rehearsed it 10 times. Um, there, there was, I, I, he didn't, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And Vince looks at me and goes, you just smeared shit all over the business.
business. You just single-handedly killed Bill Goldberg's career. And I was just looking at him because I have I have no response to that. I, I kind of thought for a minute, wow, okay, that's a hell of an accomplishment that in one night I just killed Bill Goldberg's career. And he says, he goes, there was no security guard there. You didn't have him in position. That fucking bullshit. You didn't have him ready. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. So right about this time, now we're live. So now we're out of commercial break. And on the other side of the commercial, they're showing a replay of Jericho throwing the paint and Goldberg running up. So Vince sees this and we're all and like, we're going, well, you know, let's see what the fuck happened. And he's, he, he knows that there was no security guard there. He knows that I fucked up. He's like, go ahead, go ahead. Show me the security guard. Show me, the, show, show me where he is. Where is he? Where is he? And my cameraman, Bubba Dean, points on the screen. And he goes, oh, he's right there, boss. And the security guard is standing in exactly the right position, right next to the door. And then here comes Goldberg, and Goldberg pushes him out of the way. And he drives, he drives Ego. And I'm, I'm standing there and I'm shrugging my shoulders. I got my hands up and he just looks at me and goes, fuck you. Fuck you, Bruce. Just get the fuck out of here. So that night I killed Bill Goldberg's career. I'm responsible. Me smeared shit all over the business. Yep. Well, that's our most requested story. You teased it, I don't know, maybe a year ago, it feels like, about smeared shit all over the business, and you finally got to tell it. Do you feel better getting out of your system? It's like it's got to be like cathartic to go through some of this. Sometimes. Still, my, my, fa- my favorite part of the whole of the entire ordeal was Bubba Dean innocently Oh, there he pointing is. out the security guard in the, in the shot. When he says, where that, is he? Show me when he there says he is, that, boss. do you feel like your stomach, like go into your throat? Like, oh, that was the wrong thing to say. No, I felt vindicated. I was like, because in my head, okay, here's where, here's where I'm at in my head. I'm thinking, God damn it, Bubba. Did you not frame the fucking security guy in there? Right. And then I'm thinking in my head, fuck. Did I have the security guard in the right place? I'm putting all the blame on me. I'm putting all, I'm blaming myself. I'm blaming Bubba. I'm blaming my, I'm, I'm like, you know, everybody but the talent. And then when we, when we watch the replay and we're vindicated and I'm like, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> but, um, but since then, Vince and I have been able to laugh at that that little moment, but that was something that we all shared. And it was, everybody's looking at me because there were four guys there. We all did give him the, I don't know, but everything was directed at me. That was my, that was my role, man. That was my shit. All right. So lots of stuff. Let's go briefly cover 1997. Lots of, uh, stuff happening in the WWF in 1997. The rise of Steve Austin, the turn of Bret Hart, the Hart Foundation, uh, the problems behind the scenes with Sean and Bret, the screw job, uh, lots and lots and lots of stuff going on. Real quick, Corny would have been in my head a huge proponent of the push of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Fair to say? 
Yeah, fair to say. Uh, Everybody I, was. I feel like he'd have loved the anti-American Bret Hart as well. Uh, not as much as he loved the All-American Patriot. That's what I want to talk about. So there's this famous clip out there of a Jim Cornette shoot where he talks about um, a situation, we'll say, with Kevin Dunn. Can you catch everybody up on this oh Patriot Kevin God. Dunn conversation? You were there. People have heard for years Cornette's version. <sighs> What's Bruce Pritchard's version? Okay. Well, it starts out. It was during a time that the company was uh, having some challenging financial times. So we were trying to save money any way that we could. One of the ways to save money, especially when you're going into Nova Scotia, is if you fly on a Saturday and you stay over on a Saturday night, your trip, which would normally, like, for example, to go in and do Raw, and if you went in on a Sunday night and came back on a Tuesday, the trip may be $1,000. However, if you go in on a Saturday, you keep that Saturday night stay over, your trip may be $200 because of the Saturday night stay. So it was decided that everyone going to TV would have to go into Nova Scotia on a Saturday afternoon, spend Saturday night there and Sunday, and then do a raw Monday night, do the TV after the fact to save money. And you say, well, you got a hotel, you got all that other shit. All that other shit, it was still cheaper doing that than going out on a Sunday night. And so everybody had to do it. So now everybody's got to leave home two days early to go to Nova Scotia. You ever been to Nova Scotia? I don't plan to go anytime soon. Well, it's beautiful in the summer, but um, that's all I got to say about that. To add insult to injury... We get into Nova Scotia, and Vince wants to have a production meeting. So what else you going to do? You know, I mean, hey, you're, you're in Nova Scotia. you got to leave home early. Well, let's work. Let's have a meeting. Let's have a meeting about having a meeting. And we're sitting in this uh, meeting room. Let me catch everybody up here. This is probably happening in July of 1997. Sounds about right. Uh, those a couple of dates there, July 20th in Sydney, Nova Scotia, uh, and then the next day in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, that was July 20th and 21st, 1997. Sorry about that. Keep yeah, going. and I think we were at Halifax. I think we, we based ourselves out of Halifax. I don't really remember exactly, but um, we were in a meeting, and it was the, the usual suspects in this agent meeting because everybody had to be there early and Cornette goes on talking and at some point uh kd might have said something along the lines of uh you know jim you're just tiresome which i guess went up corny's ass sideways with red hot poker and corny uh immediately shot back let me tell you something, you Bugs Bunny-looking motherfucker. And the whole room just kind of goes silent. Because, you know, it just was a personal attack. And granted, you know, KD probably started it with, with his comment about, well, Jim, you're tiresome, you know, and, and, and they just, they hated each other. 
man, every chance that Cornette uh, had to dig Kevin, he did. Every chance that Kevin had to make a comment about Southerners and you're just too Southern and that Southern uh, comments, and they just drove each other absolutely nuts. So with the Bugs Bunny comment and Cornette stands up, and I remember me and Jerry Briscoe having to uh, escort Cornette out of the room and just go, come on, Jimmy, let's go. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't like anybody was going across the table at anybody. It just was uncomfortable, unnecessary, and just kind of fucked up. But here's the fucked up part. Cornette gets sent to his room. Okay. Well, now this motherfucker doesn't have to go to any more of the meetings. He gets to go to his room and relax and chill out and have room service and watch TV. We're still stuck in the meetings. And we, we, we break up that meeting and we go to lunch. And one of the funniest fucking things, man, Jim Ross, me, Jerry Briscoe, and Vince all sit down at a table. And Vince looks at JR and says, God damn, JR. You got a problem on your hands with <laughs> Cornette. And JR's like, What the fuck? <laughs> why don't you know why don't you have a goddamn problem? But it was absolutely hilarious because it was, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, it was kind of funny being there. And uh JR having to deal with it after the fact. I was just happy I didn't have to deal with it. But Kevin Dunn would never be Jim Cornette's favorite person. Ever. No. Why would that be? Independent of this meeting. Because he was a Southerner. He just hated Cornette. So it wasn't so much that Cornette hated Kevin Dunn. It's that Kevin Dunn hated Cornette. Oh, it was mutual. It was definitely mutual. They couldn't stand the, they couldn't stand the sound side of each other. Absolutely. That was just pure hatred. And neither one respected what the other one could do at all. Totally thought the other one was full of shit. Yes. Couldn't stand each other. Couldn't stand the sight of each other. Couldn't stand the sound of each other's voice. Do you think it is, um, not trying to beat Jim up here, but do you think it's fair that Cornette has continually called him Bucky Beaver motherfucker and made fun of the teeth and did all these crazy impressions over the years? You know, that's Jim. That feels way out of character for him because normally... If that's not his deal, he'll fuck with you about your stupid ass opinion more so than your teeth. Yeah. And, and, but the, again, I, that just shows me it's like personal, like it he is. fucking hates him. Yeah, it is. It's personal on both ends, but it's to me, it's silly personal. Yeah. I, I think that there, there comes a point where <laughs> when you're like, just busting on somebody's teeth, it's like, fuck dude. <laughs> yeah. Get over it. You're um, reaching. Get over it. They're both very good at what they do. And it's just it's it's gotten to the to the point of ridiculousness and silliness, and I think that Corny does it because it's a good topic. It's like oh, for sure, people know, want to hear it. Yeah, fuck yeah. with Russo, fuck with Kevin Dunn because it's entertaining, and, and his story and his recollection of it is absolutely entertaining and funny as shit. Um, can you give us any sort of instance where you could see that you would side with Cornette and that Kevin Dunn had? Fuck some shit up. Fuck shit up in what way? 
in any way, can you say anything critical of Kevin Dunn at all right now, or are your balls in a jar in Stanford, Connecticut? No. I, you know, I think from Kevin's point of view, I think that Kevin could be absolutely fucking brutal with some of his opinions and the way that he would talk to people, uh, especially during live TV. Um, he sat in the truck and, and could just be positively exactly. ruthless of you stupid motherfucker and, and just browbeating people from the production Not like assistance. in a funny way like me and you do here, but like for real. No, for real. Okay. But, and again, I was going to sound like I'm defending him, but you have to understand the pressure. The pressure, and it, and it is kind of like when you and I get hot, fuck you, fuck you, dumb son of a bit. It, his could be more mean-spirited. But he meant it the same way we do. I think that he, you know, that he probably did. That was his way of communicating. Okay. And coming up in that era, in that time, with Vince that, McMahon, with Vince McMahon, man, that's how you communicated. Sometimes you had to. Yeah. You had to be that asshole. You needed that asshole. So. And Jim Cornette took the brunt of that one too many times uh, well, see, for his but, liking. But Jim's Jim shit, man, and it, and it got personal because it was that southern shit. And it was the, it, it came across as demeaning. It came across as I'm better than you because you're just a stupid Southern hick. And Corny's a lot of things, but he's not stupid. No. And he, he is a Southern hick, but he's a pretty fucking creative and fucking smart Southern hick. Now, in fairness, hillbilly motherfucker. Not a lot of people you can say Southern hick about and then be as liberal as as jim jim while he may be from the south certainly doesn't have all like traditional bible belt opinions on stuff no absolutely not you know jim jim this was my comparison people used to ask me to describe uh jim Cornette, and i used to say that jim uh, that uh, paul Heyman and jim Cornette, they're one in the same paul Heyman is just a sophisticated jim Cornette. Jim Cornette is just a hillbilly version of Paul Heyman. Both brilliant, both great at what they do. One's from New York, one's from Kentucky. And but I think that what it boils down to with the the KD uh, JC just conflict was it, it was personal and it was from stemming from. Kevin could come across as very demeaning and and mean spirited in that you know that Southern Hick shit. Oh, that's that, that wrestling. All Kevin's ever known is WWF. Right. He's never he'd never been experienced anything else. And anything else that he has been experienced to or exposed to was usually tarnished by Vince's opinion before ever seeing it or experiencing it. Sure. Ah, goddamn Southern wrestling. Tennessee wrestling. So you're he's jaded there. Sure. Um, but it, it was, that's what it was, man. It, it just was silly. Hey guys, Tony Schiavone. need to call a timeout real quick. Wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling what happened when listeners for a while now about all the cool things happening over on adfreeshows.com. On a new edition of The Insiders, Conrad sits down with former Turner Finance executive Dirty Dick Cheatham, talking about the internal war between WCW and Turner and the Monday Night War with the WWF. And my assistant said, hey, you're not going to believe who's down there. I said, who, who? 
She says, China's down there in this, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, uh, and I went over to her window and looked at that, hey, the whole, all of the eggs is down there. Get the camera. <laughs> so, so we went down there and of course they were, the eggs exactly what was down there in the fight with security. On a bonus episode of My World, Double J watches back his tag team championship match against FTR and breaks down the hilarious Briscoe farm skit that preceded it. And they say, can y'all be in the background talking? And the four of us are down there, really, just you know, all four of us. But Lethal and Sanjay, I said, we got to start being silly. I just started strumming the guitar, and Sanjay <laughs> started bouncing that baby, and Sanjay and them started doing the dose to dough. I think this is, I don't know, this is the funniest, but I still think it's, it's, a, hilarious. it's a complete ad lib, but it played to, you know, the line he said, them clowns, and we're down there dancing. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That's just a small taste of what we got waiting for you. With four levels to choose from, see for yourself why ad-free shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adfreeshows.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.